Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, my guest is Professor Paul Monks, Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Professor Monks, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Gavin, and uh, thank you very much for having me. So before we dive into some of the details, what would you say are the the key elements of your role as Chief Scientific Advisor at Bayes? Okay, so Bayes is the Department for Business, Energy, Industrial Strategy. So we're the department that supports uh, uh, business, uh, energy and industry across the UK. And I have about five different roles and responsibilities as the CSA. Uh, Probably the one that I spend most of my time is making sure departments policies are supported by the best science and engineering advice available. I provide a lot of independent and impartial advice to ministers, senior officials, policy makers. I act as the the head of science and engineering profession within Bayes, which is one of the government uh, professions, making sure that uh, we're pushing forward science and engineering and science thinking uh, within the government. I work across government as well, with the community of chief scientific advisors under the leadership of Patrick Valance, who's the uh, government uh, chief scientific advisor. And we work together a lot on uh, across departmental scientific problems and good practice. And also, you know, I, I act as an outward face uh, of the of the technical part of Bayes, if you will, uh, and international science for engineering for uh, um, academia and business. So it's quite a wide and varied role, as you can gather that from that, Gavin. Which is which actually is a really nice thing about being a chief scientific advisor. You get to do a lot of different things. No, it does sound uh, quite interesting and a lot of fun, actually. Um, the, the first thing you mentioned was uh, policy supported by the best scientific advice. Uh, and I'm interested, obviously, Bayes has this wide portfolio of activities mm-hmm. within that portfolio. What are the ones where, you, you know, science advice is actually most important, most critical? Well, I, I think it's interesting, actually. Um, there's, I often think about Bayes uh, in kind of three areas. And we, we kind of have an interesting duality at the heart of base because we're both a customer for science to support policy de- development, but also we set the policy for delivering UK science. So that's quite an interesting sort of kind of juxtaposition. And the kind of big areas across that where we, we are a customer for that science are particularly in the, the areas of energy and climate, which we can talk about in detail. But an area that often isn't thought about is we're also a big customer for science in the business sector innovation and delivery. So we, we are responsible for a number of business sectors, auto, aerospace, medicines, AI, for example. And actually, we're a big customer for uh, science and understanding to drive innovation in those sectors as well. And the, the other bit is actually the science for, for policy bit, if you will, or policy for science bit, which is supporting you know, elements such as UKRI and the National Academies. And we often get, I often get drawn in there to support and, and give a, a view as, a, as an active scientist to help them uh, develop and deliver the policies across those sort of areas of, of supporting and sponsorship of the, of the UK science system. Yeah, that is quite a, a range of different things. And it's interesting you're on both sides of the science for policy and policy for science debate, pulling not pulling you in different directions, but with, with a different kind of set of emphases. Um, let's just dive into a specific example, see how the process might work. So a couple of months ago, the government published an energy security strategy. And obviously within that, there are some quite specific targets for, I don't know, energy generation from different sectors and, and so on, and targets for energy efficiency. So the department's clearly taken some advice in order to come up with some of these targets and publish this mm-hmm. strategy. 
How did all of that come together and how's the role of the chief scientific advisor involved in, in that kind of policy document? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. I mean, so that, that, that document in itself has, has quite a genesis and you can go back to uh, the 10-point plan for the, for the Green uh, Revolution, uh, Green Economic Revolution, I think it was called, in November, I guess that's November 2020, uh, isn't it? Which kind of laid out some of the ambitions around that. And over the, the year that followed that, in the year of COP26 and, and our COP presidency, we did a lot of work getting the science in place to deliver the net zero strategy. Uh, and now I, I sound a little bit like, I often joke sometimes about Bayes that we are DFS, we don't sell sofas, we are the department for strategies. Yeah, in a way, we went through a period of doing a lot of strategies and, and, and many of those strategies had a huge amount of science in there. And what was my role in that? Well, I could use my convening power as a CSA uh, to bring groups together uh, in order to, uh, to, to support that sort of process. So the moment in the energy area, working with a group of academics and stakeholders uh, in the bioenergy area, looking at the provision and understanding of what really in, in something like biomass energy, what do we really mean by net zero? Uh, how do we classify that? Working on, uh, I chair something called the Green Taxonomy Energy Working Group, which is looking at, uh, um, with respect to finance, it's a science-based taxonomy. You know, do we understand uh, what is green and how would we define something as green with respect to, has financial outcomes, but it's actually science-based as part of that. So we went from the 10-point plan, which kind of laid that out. We did a lot of work with you know, huge amounts of policy teams reaching out. Uh, I, I convened small parts of that, make sure the expert advice is there. Uh, working with the policy officials as drafts come along, looking at those drafts, reading them, questioning, you know, uh, the basis, the scientific basis uh, for that, working through a number of high level uh, strategy steering groups uh, in order to do that produces the net zero strategy, uh, which was probably one of the most, and the CCC's, in the CCC's words, not mine, one of the most comprehensive net zero strategies anywhere in the world. Now you might say, well, why, when you ask me about the British energy security strategy, am I talking about the net zero strategy? You may well ask that question. Well, in some ways, the, 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 uh, the, the, the British energy security strategy was a step up from that. It, you know, that laid out the ambition in one level, the level of the 10 point plan, you know, five gigawatts of, of hydrogen by, by 2030. Um, Alongside the net zero strategy, we put together the research and innovation framework, which is a really a document I would really recommend that you read that said, as you go forward towards you know, 2050, what, should, what, what research and innovation are we going to need in order to, to meet that net zero challenge? And then what the energy and security strategy did was really lift up that ambition. It said, well, actually, rather than five gigawatts of hydrogen by 2030, we'll do 10 gigawatts of hydrogen by 2030. And, and that was, in some senses, already based on the good science that we'd already put into understanding of, 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 of hydrogen, hydrogen strategy, and very much was more policy driven. Uh, 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 about upping up the ambition in the short term. So really, there's this continuous, uh, and I hope I kind of map that out and give you a feel, continuous conveyor belt of, of understanding and making sure the science is fitting into often a very rapidly evolving policy landscape. And, and when the ambition for something like increasing the amount of hydrogen, you know, that a lot of those are policy questions. Do you have the business models? Do you have the pull for that? Well, you know, will the technology you know, so one area that we're working on at the moment is critical minerals. Uh, so we've announced the net zero strategy that uh, we've put a critical minerals 
uh, intelligence centers together and a critical mineral strategy, recognizing that might be uh, a break on the economic growth required for sectors such as auto uh, scaling up uh, on, on batteries and the like, you know, we're probably going to need somewhere in the region of 90 gigawatt hours of battery technology by, by 2030 uh, uh, in order to do that. You know, where are we going to have the minerals uh, available to do that? That also drives things like the, the, the energy security strategy, you know, are we going to have the availability of that? So it's taking off on that holistic view. And actually the role of the CSA is often to step back from current policy and be working out what the next challenge is and making sure the science is in place to help deliver that next challenge uh, that's coming down the line. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, that also shows how strategies don't just pop up out of nowhere. They build on things that have happened before, but also this long-term evidence need and, and looking forward. I wanted to ask you one of the things that all government departments have been asked to do in terms of looking forward for evidence needs has been producing uh, this document, this list of questions called the areas of research interest, um, partly as a way of engaging externally, actually. Um, how is Bayes using them and how have you developed them and taken them forward? So I mean, it actually, you know, it's a perfect segue, isn't it, Gavin, to what we're talking about. In a way, that question of looking towards the future you know, around that. It's interesting, I, I, I would always say that the policy horizon is relatively short, it's 12 to 18 months. And the challenge often for science is to marshal the understanding that's going to be needed beyond that policy horizon. And ARIs are exactly the purpose of that because they're signaling that longer term intent, that longer term need that the department is, is, is going to have. And what I do is I work with both the, uh, we have dedicated science and innovation teams within Bayes. I work with them uh, to, to uh, develop these ARIs, challenge them to think a little bit beyond the current policy drawdown uh, around what we're going to need in the future. So we can signal importantly to a, a range of research providers, not just academic industrial research providers about what our needs are going to be. And we use the ARIs both in the midterm in the sort of 12 month to 18 month timescale, but also trying to indicate those longer term challenges that we have in the future uh, as well. And that in the net zero areas that you know, things like the hard to decarbonize sectors, you know, where we, where we know we're going to have challenges in those sort of areas and challenge people to think a little bit about research that, that allows us to get to the last 20% of those hardest decarbonized sectors in net zero, for example. Yeah, and presumably the ARIs are a route to increasing, pulling in uh, scientific expertise from outside the department. I realise you also have it within the department, but but how do you go about networking and interacting with learned societies and with UK universities and with uh, academic expertise, wherever it is? So it's interesting, actually, this is a question about how, how we source uh, our, our science advice, uh, if you will. You know, um, so I have myself a science advisory council, uh, which was set up in a department that, that helps uh, people in the department can come with, with ideas and bring it to that. I mean, the CSA, myself as the CSA and the CSA office, we uh, have relationship with the National Academies, particularly the Royal Society, the British Academy, the Royal Academy of Engineering, who we contend to reach out to as our, as our call centre, if you will, for when we need to think about uh, specific uh, advice. 
Um, the government has the Council for Science and, and Technology, which is the prime ministerial uh, science and technology committee, and we, we tend to use that. We find actually uh, knowledge brokers extremely useful. I find knowledge brokers extremely useful. So things like the Parliament, Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology, they're, they're an incredibly uh, useful um, uh, set of knowledge. You know, we have obviously uh, mechanisms like SAGE, of course, which is ob obviously famous in the pandemic, but it is actually uh, provides science and technical advice in case of emergencies, uh, as well as that, as well as cross-government um, professions. What we tend to find and what I tend to find useful is, is places that aggregate knowledge. Uh, and that aggregation of knowledge is really important to a CSA. I want that, I want that scientific consensus. I want to understand the aggregation of an area rather than sometimes the, the latest uh, result uh, of, of, of an area. So yeah, we we run actually. Uh, I co-chair with with industry something called the Energy Research Partnership, for example, that bring, brings together a, a mixture of industry, uh, academia, and and NGOs. Uh, and I find that a very useful forum in the energy uh, area to kind of get an understanding of 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 a consensus on some of the energy challenges, for example, and and the R and D that's going to be needed for those energy challenges. So my, my, my challenge out there a little bit is definitely that one around uh, aggregation and aggregation of knowledge is, 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 is very much critical uh, as, part, as, as, part, uh, as part of my role. It's very interesting what you've been saying. I know when I was uh, at the University of Southampton and advising academics to interact with government, uh, we would quite often say that government is more interested in your expertise than your individual evidence uh, and your knowledge of the state of the art and the state of the research in an area, rather than, as you say, the, the, the very latest small piece of evidence that, that individually is working on. And I hope that that message is, is out there and that uh, many in the academic community are, are responding to it. And there are sort of these knowledge brokers within universities and within learning societies and, and mm -hmm. others, yeah. Well, Gavin, you know, without, without kind of uh, beating your drum, one of the reasons why we engage with the Foundation for Science and Technology is that they, they bring that kind of fora to, to aggregate knowledge and challenge that sort of evidence and discuss the big issues uh, in the round. Uh, and again, we find that kind of very useful um, and it plays a very interesting role at that interface between science and policy which is, you know, and you know, I'm a great believer in evidence-informed policymaking rather than evidence-based policymaking. And for me, there's a great distinction between those, those two worlds. You know, science is based on logic and understanding, you know, uh, and, and, and policy and policymaking is not, you know. So your know, evidence and science informs that thinking, you know, uh, which, which often has to take intangibles and into its into its uh, outcomes yes i'd certainly agree with that and uh, making sure that everybody in the system understands those things uh, is is very much what it's about let me take you into a different direction we, we were talking just now about external scientific expertise um, but within the department itself, you have a number of scientists, a number of engineers. You, you said that you were head of the science and engineering profession in Bayes as part of your role as mm -hmm. chief scientific advisor. So what are some of these science and engineering skills that you need within Bayes? Um, and I mean, and have you have you got all the skills that you need and are you, are you getting a throughput of people and so on? 
No, I, I think this is recognition, and it's very much driven by by Patrick Balance and and the and the government office for science is that you know government benefits from having a number of scientists uh, in its ranks. Why does it benefit from having a number of scientists in its ranks? Scientists have a very different way. Scientists and engineers, and I, and I should say this, I, I feel that I always do engineers out of a out of a good say so. So I always say when I'm talking about science, I'm talking about science and engineering, and very much. Uh, is, is both those uh, both those sort of disciplines. Well, what value do they bring to government? They, they have a very different way of looking at problems and breaking down problems. And that is incredibly useful in the government context. You know, very much, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of policy in a place like Bayes, which is actually underpinned by, by scientific understanding, you know, particularly in the areas of climate change, energy, but also in, in business innovation, understanding uh, that innovation cycle, understanding the nature of R&D and, and um, TRL levels, technology readiness levels, kind of moving up there that are underpinned by science. So the value is having those, those people that, that are trained scientists and engineers in the system, supporting the development and delivery of, of that policy on a day-to-day -day basis. And what the profession really does is, is help skill those people, helps them grow within the civil service as part of that, uh, gives them the skills uh, uh, that they need and the, the learning and development pathways uh, that they're going to need in order to do that, uh, brings the opportunities uh, to, to uh, that are available within the civil service, but also we run some really interesting things on um, on science and engineering, bring science and engineering. So we ran within base science and engineering week as part of uh, science week. We had you know thousands of people who were not scientists as well as scientists and engineers coming along, learning about what science uh, can do. We have a a bottom up network called the base science and engineering network, uh, run by scientists within the department that runs a seminar series, a series of social events. Uh, and training events, all of which are incredibly important as part of growing science and engineering and the role that it plays uh, within any good government department. I realise that uh, we've got to this point in the interview, I haven't really talked very much about business. You mentioned in some of your uh, much earlier remarks that uh, as, as well as some of the big policy areas like uh, energy and climate, there were business sectors and policy on innovation and, and so on. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about the business sectors where you think uh, science and engineering, don't want to forget engineering, science and engineering uh, uh, advice really helps within, within the sort of the, the base context. No, yeah, there's quite a few. And without wanting to give a list, I'll just kind of give a flavour of them. So there's no doubt, I've already mentioned aerospace. You know, we, we fund the Aerospace Technology Institute, uh, which works alongside us to help deliver innovation in aerospace. Uh, similarly, in, in automotive, the Automotive Propulsion Centre as part of, of that. There are other areas, you know, I'm working at the moment with the Advanced Materials team, just thinking about what role innovation and what role government should get involved in the advanced materials uh, type sector as well. I've talked about critical minerals and the role that that plays uh, underpinning things like gigafactory uh, development as well. So there's really, you know, there's working with the Office for Life Sciences uh, who work on, on um, a range of science, uh, engineering and healthcare uh, uh, issues, you know, dementia, what else are they working on at the moment? Oh, lots of different things 
you know, across that sort of piece. The Office for AI is in base as well, thinking about digital, digital policy. That's very much jointly with, with, with other government departments. OLS is with, obviously, with Department for Health and Social Care. Uh, the Office for AI is, is with, uh, with uh, Department for Culture, Media and Sports. So working across government is very important on that sort of uh, innovation uh, piece as well. Uh, thinking really about the challenge that we're trying to think a little bit about is what is the result of research and innovation and scale up? In my view, there's a challenge particularly around the industrialization of R&D and how government can support that industrialization to drive uh, uh, productivity gains and jobs and growth in the, in, the, in the UK business sectors. And that's something that we can think a little bit about. And actually the aerospace example is a really good example of where we're doing that through something like the ATI, bringing government money alongside industry money to, to make sure that we develop cutting edge technologies, for example, to uh, for net zero flight, uh, hydrogen based flight. Very interesting. Uh, we're coming towards the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask you as a final question, looking forward the next sort of 12 months or so, um, what's likely to be in your inbox? What are you working on at the moment? So what are the sort of big things uh, I'm looking at? Um, I mean, really, there's there's a never ending um, uh, amount of work on the delivery of, net, of the net zero strategy. So that's been the big uh, thing, you know, COP26, we deliver the net zero strategy for that. But it's really with these strategies, it's not about having a strategy. It's about them making sure that you deliver that strategy. And there's a lot of science and engineering that supports the delivery of that strategy. So, so net zero in all its forms is, is a very big and important uh, area for me. Other areas that <clears throat> I'm going to be working on over the next uh, six to 12 months, I would imagine, uh, doing a lot of work with uh, DHSC on thinking about medical radionuclides uh, and the supply of those medical radionuclides, making sure that we've got research and innovation in place for the next generation of, of those sort of radionuclides. I think you mentioned the energy security strategy and um, there'll be much uh, about supporting uh, the R&D that we're going to be needing to think about to scale up our ambition in a number of energy areas, and particularly what I'm going to be talking about at the foundation, uh, the upcoming meeting uh, on, on nuclear uh, and nuclear R&D, and how we get ready and make sure we've got the system to be able to support uh, our growth of ambition in a range of, of energy areas across the piece as well. And that runs all the way from, from uh, the energy of today, uh, if you will, uh, renewables, uh, nuclear, uh, the energies of the near term, hydrogen. I spend a lot of time talking about hydrogen, but also the energy sources of the future, fusion. You know, uh, working with what is you know very active um, UK business community and future fusion, as well as our places like UKAA who are developing some of the big uh, fusion reactors of the future. So there'll be no shortage of things to do, Gavin, over the next uh, uh, six to twelve months. I can tell you, and of course there'll then be events, dear man, events. Well, I, I would never accuse you of not having enough to do, um, but thank you so much for finding time today to speak to us. Uh, Professor Paul Monks, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Paul Monks, Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Professor Monks is also a presenter at an event that we are holding on the 15th of June entitled New Nuclear and the UK Energy Strategy. 
All the details of this event, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all of our other events, all of our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Doug Parr, Chief Scientist of Greenpeace UK. Until then, goodbye.